Welcome to the Alpha Universe Podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com. And today I'm speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, Brian Smith, about sports, celebrity, black and white, and secrets of portrait photography. In Tech Talk, I sit down with Sony's Mark Weir to discuss lens technology and what goes into creating a great lens. Then Brian Smith returns with Do This Now tips to become a better portrait photographer. Brian Smith is one of the most accomplished photographers of his generation. His photographs have appeared on countless magazine covers, newspaper page ones, and in some of the biggest ad campaigns in the world. Brian's brilliant career includes honors from World Press Photo and Pictures of the Year competitions, among others. Brian was an early adopter of Sony cameras and lenses, and also one of the original Sony artisans of imagery. He joins us from his home in South Florida. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. Anytime we can sit down and chat. I'd like to jump right in and, and start with your background. How did you get into photography in the first place? Well, I started shooting for the local newspaper, shooting swimming. I was on the swim team and the sports editor from the newspaper had to shoot his own photographs and he didn't particularly like shooting swimming and, well, wasn't particularly good at it. So I worked up the courage one day and showed up with a handful of my prints and um, he uh, hired me as a stringer on the spot. So I started photographing all the swim meets for them and then eventually branched out to gymnastics and football and a few other sports. So you really got started, really uh, getting thrown right into the deep water there. Well, it, it's about four and a half foot, so it wasn't that deep. So did you really just begin as a sports photographer and your love of sports photography was from an early early age? Well, it, it was really photographing what I knew, and that's always a good advice for people is photograph something that you're passionate about. And um, certainly with sports photography, understanding the sport, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a golfer uh, on par with Tiger Woods to photograph golf, but it really helps if you know the angles and know the game. Um, same thing for any sport. Very true. Where did you go from there? Well, I continued working for the local newspaper throughout high school and then went off to college at University of Missouri where I studied journalism and shot for, in addition to all the class assignments, I shot for the uh, newspaper and yearbook and eventually became editor of the yearbook. So um, I think, you know, my advice to students who are in school is stay as busy as you can and, you know, look for any avenue to photograph. Definitely. And when you got out of school, did you start with uh, the local paper full-time? I, uh, out of school, I had internships with a couple newspapers while I was in college. And um, one of them, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, offered me a job once I graduated. So after, uh, after college, I started working there and I worked there for about six months before uh, what really was a dream job opened up at the uh, Orange County Register in Southern California. How long were you at the register? I was there for four years, um, from 81 to 85. And were you shooting primarily sports at the register? You do a little bit of everything in newspapers. I did a lot of sports, so I shot some of the uh, Lakers championship games, um, Super Bowls. But um, you know, probably the biggest sporting event that I shot was, was the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Um, but you really shoot everything. You do portrait photography, news, food, um, fashion, you name it. You won a Pulitzer Prize during your career. Was it at the, um, the register? Yeah, it was for the, the Olympics. So that was really a, you know, one of those dream assignments that falls in your lap. Um, you know, it's something I never anticipated being able to shoot, particularly that early in my career. But uh, I was one of uh, three photographers assigned to photograph the Olympics for the register. And we kind of, uh, we squared off against the biggest paper in the area, the Los Angeles Times, which had 24, which actually takes me to a good thing. It's like whenever you have a situation that boils down to a David versus Goliath, it's always so much more fun to be David in those situations because the expectations really weren't that high on us. And we knew there was no way the three of us could be 
shoulder to shoulder with 24 photographers. So it really gave us the freedom to shoot from and look for something different. So we didn't have to do the record shot of the finish line if we thought we might get a better picture a quarter turn past it or from overhead or a different vantage point. Um, the term that our director of photography, Ron Mann, used was swing for the fences, where you don't play it safe. You really look for that interesting shot that either you're, you know, either either you're going to swing and completely miss or you're going to come back with something very memorable. And we were lucky enough to come back with memorable shots that other people didn't have. I think when you're describing that kind of a David and Goliath scenario, when you're David, you have like nothing to lose and everything to gain. When you're Goliath, you have everything to lose and, and comparatively little to gain. And it really is, just like you said, it's very liberating um, to just have that spirit of, let's just try it. You know, we got nothing to lose here. We're going to just try and do something and be different and really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it. what really helps, though I should mention as well, is having the backing of, you know, the newspaper is having, you know, not only did um, Ron Mann encourage us to go out and swing for the fences, but he let us know he'd have our backs if, you know, we tried for something heroic and failed. At least we tried. And I think that's a good lesson to everybody is to, you know, back up the people when you want them to really come through for you. Do you think that that, um, that early experience of just experimenting, trying something new, like you said, having that kind of great great backing and support, but really made you just want to try something new in all facets of your career since then? I think that had a lot to do with it. I, I think, you know, I came to the staff at a really good time. It was a, it was a relatively young staff, probably two-thirds of the photographers were under the age of 30. So I think there was a lot of creativity. People didn't tell us no a lot, which is a scary thing when you don't tell photographers no. Uh, you never know what they're going to do. But it, it's also a very liberating experience. And the paper would display the photographs really well when we came through. A lot of times they would run a picture the full section front of uh, the newspaper. So, you know, roughly 14 by 20 inches, which at the time was pretty unheard of, but, uh, you know, could not have come at a better time in my career. And how long were you at the register all told? Uh, four years. So how long after the Olympics did you, did you leave? Um, about a, a year and a half after the Olympics. Um, I had been doing a lot of magazine work at that point and kind of was looking to make a move. And actually there were a couple, couple magazines that had one had offered a contract but wanted me to move to the Midwest, and I had kind of been spoiled uh, being out of the Midwest in Southern California. And then really out of the blue, uh, Miami Herald contacted me, and I really was not anticipating working for another newspaper, but they offered the opportunity to, to photograph foreign assignments in their sphere of coverage. And uh, one of the places that really fascinated me at the time was Haiti. And I just figured, you know, spending a couple of years uh, getting some international news photography under my belt, seeing if that's something that I wanted, uh, would be a great experience. So I took the job at the Miami Herald and covered pretty much every time something blew up in Haiti. I got on a plane for them usually three or four times a year um, and went down and documented both you know, the news that was breaking, but we also tried to look at it from a features perspective of really what was going on that was leading to all the unrest. And since then, you've really transitioned and become um, an internationally famous portrait photographer and celebrity portrait photographer. How did that transition happen? Well, they kind of happened at the same time. Initially, when I took the job at the Miami Herald, I told all the magazines I was working for that... Uh, I was moving to Miami and I probably would not be available, but thank you for all the work that they'd given me, but I wanted to concentrate on this new job. And after a couple of couple years, it's like a few of them, you know, contacted me and are like, are you sure you don't want to do this? And so I gradually started getting back and shooting um, for a mix of magazines, actually a lot more than I'd been working for in Southern California and it was a good transition that way of not suddenly going out on my own. Um, I would shoot nights and weekends or, you know, and sometimes I'd take, a, I'd use a week of vacation to shoot 
back-to-back stories for Sports Illustrated, Rolling Stone, and then a travel magazine. So the last three or four years that I was at the Miami Herald, I was, you know, pretty much spending whatever free time I had, um, nights, weekends, vacation time doing magazine work. And uh, I probably pushed it as far as I, I could in terms of it's a good thing to do when you're in your 20s, but um, it does take a toll on you. So I kind of told myself once I was making more money outside the newspaper than I was from my steady paying job, it was time to leave. And that hit in 1991, where it was a, you know, a good time for me to take it to the next level. And I'm sure I probably had worn out all my uh, days off for the next couple of years at the the newspaper at the same time. So um, I really, I probably left at the right time. It was a great time in magazines. They were doing financially much better than they are today. So they tended to have very nice travel budgets. And um, um, for the next uh, 15 years, I ended up working, you know, an average of 225 days a year as freelance. So it was uh, a very busy transition. It's incredibly busy. I can't imagine uh, doing that much travel at that time. When you're photographing people, do you think that that photojournalism and that sports background comes into play in in your portraiture? Well, I think the thing that I was always more interested in, one of the reasons that I made the transition was I, I loved the opportunity to shoot sports on a major level, whether it was the Olympics, Super Bowls, World Series, NCAA Finals. But it was the times that I could spend one-on-one with an athlete and really get to know them that um, really captivated me. So I was was drawn more toward portraiture where you're often directing more than, you know, capturing um, or creating more than capturing, I should say. So it's it's a different skill set, but it's it's a really good foundation to have come from shooting sports and news where there are like, even if I go in with a, with a plan of what I want to do, it's like remembering that background of shooting news and sports and watching and anticipating what might come next. Because I always say it's go in with a great plan, but then be nimble enough to, to scrap the thing when something better presents itself. That's really a great, great point. And to me, when you're photographing um, celebrities, you're dealing with people that are not just, you know, outsized individuals, but they're, they're more than a person. They're really a brand. And as a brand, there's a lot of, um, a lot of baggage. I, shouldn't, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, um, but just there's a lot that comes with that. How do you work with somebody who is, you know, you're, you're getting to know them sort of one-on-one as you're photographing them, but at the same time, there are these other concerns out there from sometimes an entourage of people and handlers and managers and things like that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point and something, you know, that a lot of people really miss in that whole thing um, is, I, I wouldn't say so much baggage, but it's, it's agendas. So if you're photographing a star for their latest movie, um, you know, the studio behind it, their agenda is to promote the movie. The star probably cares about them, but that, but also cares about, um, how they look, um, their publicists that might not be even concentrating on that movie. They're thinking about the next thing coming up and how this will advance the star along. The magazine's got an agenda where, you know, typically they don't want this to look like it's a publicity shot. They want it to have a little bit more of an editorial edge. So it may be that agenda may be diametrically opposed to what the publicist and studios want. And then, you know, you've got the photographer and we've all got our agendas about, uh, you know, maybe creating a great image for our book or doing a better portrait of this person than uh, has been done before. Um, It's not to say that all these different agendas or ideas coming in are bad, but there's just a lot of things that have to be balanced for everybody to come away reasonably happy. And and how do you, I mean, how do you balance that? Because I just can't imagine you're part um, artist and part diplomat at that point. Yeah, a lot of it really is, it, you know, you can have the greatest concept in the world. And if you can't sell the idea, it just was like, you know, it's like a fish story. The, the 
portrait that got away. Um, and so really a lot of my job, you know, executing photography is relatively easy. Dealing with personalities and getting them to do what you want uh, is really much more of uh, the key to a successful shoot. Um, don't want to make it seem like it's difficult, but that is a big part of what you manage where as a portrait photography, a lot of really what you're doing is you've got to be a the five-minute psychologist to figure out the personality of who you're photographing, how they feel on that particular day. And, you know, there's people I've photographed 10 times and sometimes they've been in unbelievably great moods and would do anything. And uh, other times they're in a bad mood and don't want to do anything you suggest. And you just have to you have to be able to kind of turn on a dime and figure out the right approach uh, to make them comfortable um, and come away with the best picture you possibly can in that situation. You know, one of my favorite projects um, of yours is, is the Art and Soul book that you did a few years ago. And one of the reasons I like it so much is because it's, it's not only great work, but it had such a great cause behind it. Um, can you describe that project a little bit for our listeners? Uh, absolutely, Chris. So, um, Art and Soul was a was a project that we did um, in partnership with the Creative Coalition and Sony. Probably one of the greatest projects that's ever been dropped in my lap. Initially, the idea was we were going to photograph three days at Oscars Week 2008 um, and do portraits of stars during Oscar Week, and then they would write in a, a book what the arts means to them. And it was going to be, you know, a, a quickly produced book that we would get off to the White House and Congress to, as a way to use their voices and my portraits of them to expound on the, the importance of arts and arts education, um, and particularly arts funding in America. And I think we were, we were probably an hour into day one, I think we were on maybe our third portrait when we just realized we'd hit something absolutely magical. Because as opposed to what I was saying earlier about everybody's agenda, this was a situation where everybody was on the same page. The only agenda there was what the arts means to to all of us. And, you know, both as a photographer, but also actors, actresses, musicians, um, uh, composers, coming in and how the arts affected them. So the great thing about it is, is, you know, this was not a case of trying to to push an agenda on somebody. It was suddenly most of these, you know, Emmy winners, Oscar winners, Grammy winners were thinking about their first high school play or the first time they, they ever saw a Broadway show or maybe a musician who inspired them growing up. And I think that is a great thing as artists is to really get them in the mind space of what inspires them. So it was a, it was really a magical project that way. And as, as a result, we continued to shoot, uh, my, my three day project ended up being shot over, uh, 20 days over the next 18 months. So we went back to Sundance film festival and Emmys week and, back to Oscars week again and really capped it off. We did a uh, preview of the project at the Library of Congress during Arts Week in Washington, D.C. So a lot of the people that I'd photographed, but a lot of other stars came out to do a live performance there with the Creative Coalition. And so we got the that night got the last portraits for the book. We set up a green room backstage photographing Spike Lee, Patty Arquette, Marlon Wayans, um, a lot of the stars who came out there, and that were the those were the final images for the book. You know, all of the images really have um, a very intimate look about them. There's not a lot of background happening. Wardrobes are are pretty simple. It it just really feels like you as the photographer, and I hate to use the word the subject, but you know the the person that you are interacting with there. You really are making a, a great connection. It really comes through in the images. Everything was so looks so very simplified. Can you describe the setup? Well, it it actually was very simple, and that really came out of our initial shoots uh, when we were shooting that very first Oscar week. We were in a 
in a huge house that um, was one of the stops during uh, the pre-Oscar celebration. And um, the only space that was available was basically the maid's room. So there was this enormous Truesdale mansion, and we were in a nine by uh, 14-foot maid's room. So it became a very intimate space by design. And we decided to really embrace that. And the, you know, in a way, the good thing about it is to give it a more intimate feel, we ended up wrapping all the walls in black. So it was a very small, cozy space. It was, it was so small, there was basic room for myself, an assistant, even our digital tech at that point could not get in the room. So he he was actually in the the maid's bathroom running the computer and tethering tethering our shoot so it was it was a very small space but it actually worked because there were all these wild things going on in the house and then they came in and were able to kind of take a breath and relax from it all um, and so we actually tried to to continue that same sort of feel when we continued to do the shoots we did um did shoots in New York and we shot in a, a very large studio space, but we brought in the same sort of black backgrounds and sort of gave it the same cozy feel that we had instead of this big, massive white psych. It was, it had the feel of kind of a small, intimate room. Um, it, it ended up working. That also worked out great just because I knew if we had to set up backstage in a green room or uh, in a hotel suite somewhere, it's like almost everywhere we shot was larger than the original nine by 14 foot room. So it was kind of a case of we tried to make the place match the cozy feel instead of how do you make a small space seem bigger? It was, you know, it was very small and intimate. And I think a lot of it also had to do with the the subject matter of just, you know, again, people were in the right mindset. So they didn't feel like they were performing on a on a big psych it was just a you know they were very intimate portraits that were all about what the arts means to them you mentioned that one of the the sponsors was was sony was that at the beginning of um of your time shooting uh sony cameras yeah i was about six months into the artisan program um the artisan program was uh formed back in 2008 and uh it was just really the idea of, of, you know, bringing in pros who shoot with the camera, who could be brand ambassadors. Um, when Sony released their first full-frame pro camera, the Alpha 900, um, I'd been given a chance about six months beforehand to, to shoot with one of the previous APS-C models and some of the, the lenses and they asked me after a week of shooting with it for for product feedback. And a lot of the feedback I gave them really wasn't necessarily criticism of the current system because there were a lot of things that I really liked. Uh, for instance, the autofocus Zeiss glass that nobody else had um, was a huge plus. But I just gave them a list of really what was expected in a pro camera, things as simple as you know, the camera should feel solid as a brick in your hand. And it's, you know, really something that's come today, even with the the mirrorless A7R Mark II camera, it feels very solid in your hand. Um, so a, a lot of those things were just my uh, suggestions to engineers of what would optimize the camera for pro photographers. And I've been experienced with other camera companies. Normally, they don't want to hear feedback from photographers, They, aside from hearing how great their product is. Um, so I, when I sent this list of 20 things, I, you know, as soon as I hit send, I just thought, never going to hear back from these people again. I'm sure they, they're going to look at me like the... I'm the most pretentious person who showed up to give them a list of 20 things they needed to do. Um, but to my great surprise, the not only did I hear back from them, because the following fall, uh, I was sent a pre-production Alpha 900 to test before the, the announcement. And then that year at Photo Plus Expo, one of the engineers came up to me and I was expecting him to come up and say, you know, what you, what you normally expect from camera companies, which is 
tell us how great our camera is. But that's not what he said. He said, um, I, I still remember it because it's like the best way to approach a new product. He said, tell us what we did right. Tell us what we do did wrong and tell us what we need to do next. And that really sums up my experience from with Sony for the last eight years is, you know, I, I mean, granted, they're coming up with a lot of this technology on their own, things I had never thought of, but they are definitely looking at ways to blend that technology and, and optimize it for the way pros shoot. Um, and they're constantly looking for, for ways to make the product better for their users. Do you feel like you've uh, had a very real influence on some of the, the newer lenses that have come out that have been so very well received and have been such great hits with the, the portrait photography community, the, the G Masters, and now the new 50 millimeter uh, F1.4? Well, I, I, I don't want to take all the credit for the G Masters, but I was once quoted as saying that, give me a 24 to 72 8 and an 85 1.4, and I'm good with 99% of what I shoot. So um, they definitely addressed my biggest needs back in February, but I don't think it's just myself. I know those are two lenses that a lot of you know, fellow pros have been asking for. And now with the latest G Master that was announced at the same time, but is now coming out next month, the uh, 70 to 200 28 kind of completes that duo of lenses that a lot of pros find indispensable, which is a 24 to 70 and 70 to 200 28 uh, fixed primes, but not only fixed primes, but really the top quality, um, best in class for those lenses as well. So you've been shooting with Sony full-frame cameras for several years. What's your uh, your kit like now? Um, you know, I've got a ton of gear and I'll, I'll change it based on the, on the shoot if there's something specific. Like if I know I'm going to be doing available light in a jazz club, I'll definitely throw in a A7S Mark II. Um, Honestly, a lot of times I have one of those with, you know, a body with no lens tucked in a, uh, the, the cameras are small enough, they pretty much fit in the lens compartments of my roller bag. So I typically have one of those tucked away, but my workhorse cameras are a pair of um, uh, A7R Mark IIs, um, which really tick off all the check boxes for me, which is highest resolution, 42 megapixel image stabilization if I need it. Um, typically, I'm shooting with strobe a lot, but those times if I'm shooting available light, knowing that I can pull another four stops of sharpness out without a without a tripod and shoot at very slow speeds, um, it's got that. Again, it's that really solid feeling body that just is built like a tank. So I've got a pair of those bodies. And one reason I've got a pair is like, Number one, you always want a backup for everything, but I also typically have a different lens on each of them, and it's just that much quicker to you know reach down and grab a body with an 85 and then switch over to a second body with a 24 to 72 AG master. And you know a lot of times those are the those are the only lenses I go through on a, a lot of shoots, but I will take just in case I need it the FE 16 to 35 F4. Um, I rarely shoot a portrait beyond 24 millimeters, but there are times I want an establishing shot or, you know, big wide shot of the room and the 16 is the perfect lens for that. I don't particularly need it faster. F4 is perfect. So it's nice, small, compact lens for that. And then, you know, I'll throw in NFE 70 to 200, just in case I need more range. Again, I don't, I don't go to it that often, but it's good to know it's there. And I will always, always, always take the FE 90 macro with me too. Um, Though I shoot more often with the 85, it's those times if I know I want to go in really tight and capture a tight face, I know I can shoot as tight as I possibly want with the 90. It's an incredibly sharp lens. It probably ought to be called G Master instead of G because it's just one of the, 
I, I mean, I think DxO rated as the sharpest 90 to 100 millimeter macro lens ever made. And I've got to agree, it's incredibly sharp. One of my favorite lenses. I talk to a lot of uh, portrait photographers who love that lens for portraits as well. You know, it's, it's got this, um, well, the name macro, but it's such a versatile lens and so incredibly sharp, like you're saying. It's um, just really a great, a great tool to have. Yeah, I think that throws a lot of people off. Um, basically, what macro means is it's focused, it's um, optimized for near focus instead of infinity, like you would with a lens you want for landscape. And, you know, when you think of like most headshots, you're a lot closer to, to your minimum focus than you are from infinity. So it's an extremely sharp lens for for portraits. And again, you never, if you want to get a little bit tighter, you never have to stop and throw on an extension tube. It focuses down to an eye. So um, it's the lens that I know I can always count on for a very tight portrait. While we're talking about portraits, I'd like to go back and, and you were also mentioning photographing in jazz clubs a minute ago. And it reminds me of your black and white work. Not that your black and white work is all in jazz clubs, but something about a jazz club just speaks oh, black yeah. and white to me. Well, it, it, definitely I'm on the, the same page. As soon as I think of uh, jazz photography, I think of my late dear friend, Herman Leonard, um, one of the greatest jazz photographers of all time, and you know who certainly set the bar very, very high, but whose work was always you know strobe lit black and white jazz photography, which I think is synonymous with the genre. So you've done a lot of work in black and white. What draws you to that look? I, you know, I think it's just, it's probably the, the desire to do something different. So, so much of editorial and advertising photography today is really like color-driven sort of thing that whenever you can kind of push the envelope to black and white. Um, you know, I had the luck in the early days of newspapers when not that many newspapers ran color. I was able to transition from black and white to color. So I was able to shoot something new and different. So I've been shooting color for so long that it's a lot of fun to kind of get back to the, the roots and shoot black and white again. And so it's something I do a lot for on my own and, you know, try to push it for clients as well. Uh, and it's paid off a lot of times. I think that's a good piece of advice. If you, you know, if you want people to think of you as a black and white photographer, you've got to show them a lot of black and white. You can't go in with a color portfolio and go, oh, you know, I really like to do black and white too. It's like, you know, you kind of have to show them what you want. So there, there was a while my portfolios were probably two thirds black and white and Clients would always be, oh, this is amazing. We never think of you for black and white. This is great. We'll try to come up with something. And then they would assign me to shoot color. So, <laughs> you know, eventually it pays off, but you have to be persistent. Isn't that always just the way it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or or the old days of shooting film where they uh, said, well, why don't you shoot both? Um, it's gotten so much easier with digital because it's, you know, you're making one raw capture. And it, it's like... I try to tell young photographers today how much easier it is to convert from raw four-color capture um, or three-color capture, actually, I, I guess it is, um, than it was for shooting color transparency and black and white at the same time. So the ability to shoot once and then reprocess as though you had all these different films in your camera at the time of capture is to me, like one of the greatest advantages of digital photography. Yeah, I really agree. So you shoot always just the raw image. You don't shoot black and white in the camera. No, there there are times, and actually one of the, the really cool things of Sony cameras is there is, um, you know, with a lot of the cameras, they, they have a JPEG setting for black and white, and Sony does that as well with a they have what's called a one of their creative styles for black and white, and then you can kind of fine tune the c contrast of that and to your taste. And it actually only applies to the JPEG. So if you're shooting raw in JPEG, the raws will be untouched. You know, once you import them, they'll import with the 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 initial preview will be black and white, but once it goes into Lightroom or Capture One or whatever your post-processing software is, it will take it back to the 
full color image. Um, the cool thing is if you have the camera set that way, you can, with live view setting effect on, you can actually see in real time in black and white. So as you're shooting, the viewfinder is set for black and white and you're pre-visualizing. It may not be 100% exactly what I'm going to do in post, but it's a really cool starting point to be able to look at the way that, oh, gee, that red and green, actually, they both look like the same tone of gray. Uh, maybe I need to put a little more contrast in the light or this looks great this way. So being able to pre-visualize in real time in black and white through the viewfinder, I even do that sometimes with with sports, um, shooting tennis, you're shooting a chartreuse ball against a green court and it's actually so much easier to follow it if I change the creative style to, to black and white and actually through the viewfinder, look at the image and follow the ball, which suddenly becomes a white ball against a dark gray backdrop. You know, I'm still capturing a four color image, but it just makes it that much easier to track. And anyway, technology like that can help us out, I think, is a, is a great thing. Oh, definitely. And it's, it, that's just one of the facets of digital that's made such a, a huge difference for people shooting today that I think a lot of people don't even fully realize. That ability to pre-visualize in real time without having to confirm your pre-visualization after four hours of waiting at, for the lab to process a roll of film is just an extraordinary advantage. Yeah, or even even waiting to shoot the image and then chimp the image and see how the exposure is. Um, the Sony cameras have two different settings in live view for setting effect off, which basically turns the LCD and EVF into like the prism of a camera. It just gives you an average exposure. That's a great thing if you're shooting in low light with strobe. You just want the camera to act like a DSLR, but when you turn the setting effect on, um, what you see is what you get. So as you're changing the aperture or shutter speed, you see in real time a change to the brightness and exposure of the image, You know, which means you don't have to shoot it and then come back and preview and adjust. It's like you can see in real time what the exposure is going to be like and you know, play back that way as well, um, where you're not in portrait photography. One of the worst things you can do is to lose contact with the subject. So if you're looking through the viewfinder and stop and look down at the, your LCD, every time you do that, you're sort of losing the interest of your subject and you do that enough and pretty soon they're tired of it. But being able to preview as you shoot through the viewfinder where they're, I'm not suddenly turning away from the subject. My face is toward them the whole time. It's just one less distraction. You know, we've been talking a lot around how you work and, and how you, you know, use the cameras and how you work with, um, with people. And, you know, for a lot of photographers, their, their technique is something that they guard very closely and, and their equipment and how they set things up. But you're a little different. You actually wrote a book that dispelled all of that. Yeah, it was actually a tongue-in-cheek title that I used at Photo Plus, and people liked it, so I titled the book the same, which was The Secrets of Great Portrait Photography. And the tongue-in-cheek part of that is people were like, well, wait, you're not really going to tell the secrets. They're not secrets anymore. And it's like, they're not secrets to begin with. They're just hidden stuff that nobody wants to show. Um, and it all really, my philosophy of both for... If I'm speaking somewhere or I'm writing a book or doing a blog post, I try to think about the person on the other side of the stage or picking up the book or reading it online. They want to come away with something other than, um, you know, just here, I did this portrait. Isn't it cool? Um, that sort of thing never told me anything. It's like I remember early on attending speakers who really detailed their process. Um, I personally wasn't as interested in terms of like knowing what their lighting was in, as I was interested in finding out why they took a certain approach to a shot. And the people who were very open, I came away with learning a lot in, you know, the two hour of their talk or however long it took to read their book. And then if I, 
attended a talk and somebody just basically came out and went, oh, we're fabulous. We've got a DJ, um, our craft service. We always have great meals on set. Uh, the clients love me. Really, dude, like, you know, that's all you're going to talk about. So I swore if I ever had the opportunity to speak that I was going to give the talk that I wanted to hear. Um, so, you know, the whole idea in terms of secrets of portrait photography were, was the idea of like, nothing I do is a secret process. Um, I do sometimes try to steer people toward the most important part of the thing, which that book is really much more about the creative process and what it takes to pull off a shoot and how you get people to do what you want than it is the, you know, metadata settings of the, you know, the camera was set at 1 125th of a second at F11, because that's really not the key. And I think, you know, sometimes people confuse metadata with the essence of a shoot, and it's not. You know, you can set your camera for the same thing and come away with a picture that doesn't resemble it in any way because it's not the key to portrait photography. The key to portrait photography is really interacting with your subject um, and finding out what's important to them, what makes them tick, how you can capture that in a, in a single frame. And to me, that's really what we tried to convey in the book. Um, I do talk about lighting, but I've got about a dozen lighting setups that I do 99% of the time. So I can detail those things and you pretty much know the way that I light, but picking the right lighting situation for a given subject matter is really the key. You know, I've had an opportunity to see you speak on several occasions and do talks at at trade shows and um, and things like that. And I always find your presentations to be incredibly valuable and useful because you're so very open about how you work and, and how things come together and full of advice. I think it's really great. And I hope that people that are listening to this, if they ever have an opportunity, will come and see you uh, live in person. Yeah, certainly. Um, if you guys are in the in the fall at uh, Photo Plus Expo in, in New York or uh, hopefully in the spring at WPPI in Las Vegas. Those are two of the big shows um, every year for Sony. And it's, I always have a great time speaking about those. The great thing about like sharing all your secrets is you actually don't have to prepare anything. You just show your pictures and tell what it took to create them. You can find details about Brian Smith's speaking schedule on his website, briansmith.com. In addition to his website, Brian maintains a very active blog with detailed information about gear and techniques. You can find links to his site, the blog, and the Art and Soul Project in the show notes at alphauniverse.com. Brian will be back in a few minutes in the Do This Now segment to give us his top tips for improving your portrait photography. After talking with Brian Smith about his favorite lenses and the role he may or may not have played in the creation of the new Sony G Master lenses, we wanted to learn more about lens technology and, well, why lenses cost what they do. I sat down with Mark Weir in the Sony Digital Imaging Group in San Diego to get some answers. I'm here today with Mark Weir. Mark, what's your title exactly? I'm the Senior Technology Manager for Sony's Digital Imaging Categories, and it's great to be with you here today, Chris. Well, it's a pleasure. Mark, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. Um, let's talk about lenses a little bit. People talk about, you know, complain about the price of a lens. You know, there'll be criticism about um, not having a lens in the lineup. The lens comes into the lineup, and then, of course, it's priced at, at one price point. Why do lenses cost what they cost? Well, it's an interesting question, Chris. In fact, I remember when I first got into photography in a decade that I won't reveal, um, I found that it was odd that lenses which appeared to have the same capabilities were being priced at such extraordinarily different levels. For instance, uh, it is not unusual to find a $100 or $200 uh, telephoto zoom that might be f3.5 to 5.6, and yet at the same time a telephoto zoom of similar or identical focal length range with even the same aperture can sometimes cost five, six, seven times as much. So uh, oftentimes I find people asking me, why is it that some lenses cost so much and others do not? 
A lot of it has to do with the construction of a lens. Obviously, the performance of a lens is going to have a lot to do with how much it costs to make the lens. But there are other areas. Uh, the way the focus drive is operated, uh, the way the groups and elements are arranged, uh, the light gathering capability of the lens in terms of its maximum aperture, and also its light gathering capability at different focal lengths become important. Uh, minimum focusing distance becomes important. The fit and finish of the lens becomes important as well. But all of these are contributing factors uh, to how much it costs to produce a lens. Obviously, most would think that the glass itself and the nature of the glass itself and how the glass is molded become important factors as well. And that certainly is one of the central factors. But it's the optical performance of the lens and the mechanics of the lens that largely uh, regulate how much it costs to produce. And obviously, the more it costs to build, um, the more it's going to cost um, to buy. You know, we live in such a, a high-tech environment today. And I've heard people say that, like, you can't get a bad car anymore today. That pretty much any car you buy is going to be pretty good. And I've heard people make the same statement about lenses suggesting that there's really parity. If you're looking at a 50 millimeter f1.4, they're all going to perform pretty much the same. Do you think that's correct? Yes and no. Um, there is certainly a lot to be said about how lens technology has advanced, um, even over just the last couple of years, uh, to provide extraordinary improvements in optical performance and um, at very, very cost-effective pricing. Uh, the industry has seen the introduction of many um, lenses that offer tremendous value for uh, photographers in terms of the performance and their cost. But at the same time, there are also many areas where those advances in technology have led to advances in performance that photographers really treasure as well. And uh, many of the challenges that lenses have had have been overcome very recently. Obviously, the ones that come to mind, uh, you know, if you look over the years, has been, in over several years perhaps, uh, has been the adoption of um, coatings to uh, reduce flare and internal reflection to improve overall contrast. And that's typically what people think of. However, as the optical performance has improved, the nature of the glass and the glass molded shapes that have been developed and the whole technology of glass molding has allowed lens performance to achieve levels that really were not available before those technologies became available. And that's yielding not so much lenses in terms of greater focal lengths or wider apertures. The the areas where people you know, have numbers to think about the uh, performance levels of a lens. But other more subtle areas, particularly the sharpness of a lens and the contrast and resolving power of a lens, and those characteristics not just in the center but across the field. It's been pretty easy to create lenses that were very sharp in the center, but to have lenses with uniform sharpness or consistent sharpness from corner to corner has traditionally been very difficult. Another area of performance that has been developed quite recently is the nature of the background defocusing capability of a lens. Um, there have been plenty of sharp lenses, and then there have been plenty of lenses that had beautiful background defocusing effect, but rarely could you find the same characteristics in the same lens. And that's being dealt with now largely due to the advanced uh, glass molding technologies that have become available. And we've used those technologies in some of our lenses as well to great effect. Uh, the G-Master lenses that we introduced in the spring of this year are notable examples. But again, you can find those sorts of characteristics in some of the latest lenses that have been introduced. If you have a question about camera technology or lens technology, we know the people who can answer it. To submit your questions to the Sony team, go to the podcast show notes at alphauniverse.com to see how to contact us. How do great portrait photographers get the best from the people they photograph? Brian Smith joins us again with some advice about how you can become a great portrait photographer. So Brian, for our listeners who are trying to break into portrait photography or trying to just improve as portrait photographers, 
Could you give them a, a piece of advice that they could do right now uh, that would make an immediate impact? Yeah, I will. I've, I've, this is always my number one best piece of advice because it was the best advice I was ever given early on. So I'm happy to share it, which is if you want to be a portrait photographer or just if you want to be photojournalist, anyone who photographs human beings or deals with human beings, the best thing you can do is to get a lot of people in front of your lens. Um, and by that, I mean, go out and photograph people that you don't know. Go find, go on the street and find 50 strangers, introduce yourself to them, tell them why you want to take their photograph, and then do a photograph that reveals something about who they are or what makes them tick. Um, it's such a great ex experience because it gets you over your fears of interacting with people. Um, it will teach you, you know, how to get more comfortable um, breaking the ice when you photograph somebody for the first time. It's something I do. Um, I do routinely because it's like, it helps me every time I photograph a celebrity for the first time, just being that much more comfortable to approach people and explain what you want to do. Uh, and it's just a, it's a great learning experience and it's something everybody can do. Well, that's great, Brian. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been really great talking to you. Hey, thanks, Chris. Keep up the great work at Alpha Universe. Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Universe podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be National Geographic photographer and filmmaker, Bob Christ. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast at iTunes or in the podcast app on your smartphone or tablet.